give that shit up, you can concentrate on golf. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Great moments are born from great opportunity. You play ball like a girl! Okay, hi everybody and welcome to a Roy Orbison Tattoo Podcast with me, Colm, and my co-hosts, Massey and Paul. This is episode 7 of season 2. If it is your first time listening, I would advise to go back to the start and listen from episode 1, as we will refer to previous shows from time to time. This show does contain film spoilers, so if you've not yet seen the film, I would advise watching first. It might help you understand a little bit better. And now for today's show, I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Paul and Massey. Hello, Colm. How are you getting on? Well, lads, how are things? Good, good. Yeah, great. Good, great to hear from me. And today, this week, we are discussing an Irish film from 1987 called Clash of the Ash. First thoughts on the movie, let's. Blackie Connors, Glenn (laughs) Rowe. Yeah. Starring role. Yeah, like he starred in Glenn Rowe for many a day and he starred in Clash of the Ash back in 87. Yeah, it was... um... I, I, first time I watched this film was only a couple of years ago and uh, never heard of it before and it was uh, delighted I watched it again it's entertaining just it's on YouTube 57 minutes long or something and it's well worth the watch 50, 50 minutes yeah it's available on YouTube so as a definitely yeah. watch it uh, check it out anyway well worth the watch is right Paul yeah I thought it was I thought it was great um, it was full of cliches coaching cliches from the, the, the from the bus journey at the start and look, it was really good. It was like a a cork version of the snapper, is is how I describe it. Obviously, not as good as the snapper, but a cork version of the snapper. Well, I suppose it was sitting for my um, in in North Cork, and I suppose they they actually they used their colored jerseys and they used their pitch and the ball alley. I think was you was the ball alley that they used in that they have in St Coleman's College. The famed hurling nursery in in for my, um. So the only I think the only no I don't know maybe back in the day the only thing that was not correct to true life was they were playing Mitchellstown in hurling and as far as I'm aware, it's Ballygiblin is the hurling players from Mitchellstown play hurling for Ballygiblin to play football for Mitchellstown and vice versa. But back in the day, maybe Mitchellstown had a hurling team. But I think that's the only inaccuracy that, that I could find from the from the film. But um, other than that. I suppose for looking at it, I would have thought it was a small bit of a an old version of normal people, uh, a small as regards the player, star player going through kind of life's difficulties that you don't see in, in movies, you know, probably true to real life. The I suppose what 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 the Phil Kelly was dealing with. Yeah, do you know what I didn't look at that angle at all, but it's actually a really good analogy, and like the similarities are are striking. You'd love to. You'd love to see a sequel where he's over on the building sites in uh, in London. Was, um, I wonder did she steal the idea from normal people from Clash of the Ash? When you talk about it, there, Colm, that's a great spot. Yeah, no, obviously it was the first thing that kind of came to mind when when it kind of kind of seen the I suppose the psychological side of it. You know, the the pressure that's on the player or the person who is a player. And like how how they deal with it, and I suppose it was just just an angle. I, there was somebody else. I remember I was thinking it was a, a mixture between normal people and something else. But maybe maybe as Paul says, it might have been the snapper, um, or some some variety of it. The scene the scene after the nightclub or the the 
the disc or whatever you'd call it where with the, the milk bottles was very War of the Buttons-esque as well. You know, when they, they throw the, the milk bottles yeah. at the... At the car. Well, a waste of good milk is what, is what I'd say it was. And no damage to the car whatsoever. Yeah, it must have been the cheap old, the cheap old glass, glass milk bottles. But uh, yeah, I suppose there was... Uh, I suppose like that, that scene, that whole nightclub scene was, was actually... I don't know if you thought it was anything similar to your own youth, but you kind of had the, the boys from the local town that you used to play against and uh, you wouldn't mingle with them and there might be a bit of friction inside the nightclub might lead to the odd scrap every now and again. But it was uh, interesting, interesting to say. And I thought my favourite part of it was uh, something that's gone from, from Ireland of today is the chip fan afterwards. And that was something that all rural towns would have had um, I don't know in the city, the big cities, they might not be prominent, but I remember back in Bandon, back geez, early 90s, late 80s, there would have been a chip fan every Friday night pulled up kind of across the road from the nightclub. And I just. Oh, you doing out in the late 80s? Well, we used to have the pub. On a Friday night. <laughs> we, we used to have the pub, and our pub was directly across the road from the nightclub. And if you looked out the back window onto the road behind, um, you'd see the, the thing. So obviously, we were in the pub, and we would have been up late enough, but. Um, I just always remember it and I was looking at it going Jesus you know what you don't see them anymore and the food used to be lovely out of them not that you city boys would have known anything about it but not a city know. boy Irish you're as good as and the other thing like it's it's really just a throwback to, to, to youth like I thought the other thing that was a throwback was the when they were drinking the flagon of cider inside in the car and flagons are I'd say they're gone no, I don't <laughs> want any young fella know what a flagon is if we're talking about a flagon He'd me. He'd be like, "No, it's a nagging." They go, "No, no, I'm not about a flagging." Flagging. Yeah, it was a throwback. It was a throwback. Devil's, do you remember Devil's Bit? That was the last oh. flagging I think I've ever saw. Poison. Devil's Bit cider. Huh? Yeah, but anyway, back to the back to the thing. I suppose. Look, they're talking about him from the start. The coaches were on the bus, and they were saying how he had the potential to go to go uh, to be a, a county miner, and but he's just not that interested, and. Just like that bus journey to to start off with, there was some amount of cliches in it. Like, like he just doesn't give a damn, and he's notions, and he's a fair weather hurler. Like that, Mick Barry used he was he he, he used as many cliches, hurling cliches as possible throughout the whole film. Like it didn't abate as as, as the whole film goes on, and it was very like um, that Pat Short character, Timmy Ryan. It was just you know he he does a really good skit there. Um, we'll we'll get a link to it. We'll get a link to it and we'll throw up on Twitter. Darren, enjoy yourselves, <laughs> and you know all about it next year on the fourteen. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like it was it was cliche after cliche from from the bold the bold Mick Barry. But like he, I suppose it was interesting that um, like he he was willing to forego all of Phil's I suppose issues of not turning up the train and stuff like that once he was at the game Sunday. So he even bought, I think he even bought him a pint in the pub just so he'd be there at the match Sunday. So like you had other fellas probably training every single night and making every session, but the, the star player was kind of allowed away with a lot. And it's it's something that we kind of would have seen an awful lot of before, wouldn't we? I believe like even during the film, the guard, remember at the start of the film when they're outside the petrol station getting money off their friend, the guard comes along and he asks him what he lies up there. How would you get on? Mm. And he was on yes. to hurl the match, and once he, he was a star herder and they won the match, he turned a blind eye. Like so, yeah, it, it does happen. The the star player usually gets away with a lot. Uh, and I know we would have seen it in the American movies even more so that 
the allowances made for I suppose I suppose flaw, flaws of the individual and behaviors yeah absolutely yeah and I suppose if you look at it um what good does that do the player long term so obviously it finishes off with Phil pulling it a wild stroke and going off to London and giving up the game of Horland. We presume that's how it's finished off. Um, and that, I suppose, was enabled by the coach's dealings with him, you know, by letting him away with doing that, coming and going as he pleased and just playing the matches and not living the lifestyle that is required to hurl or to get, it, get anything back off the off the engagement to Horland, you know. Like, like you you mentioned there a few weeks ago about your philosophies, Paul, and you're on about like you, you it might change from team to team your styles and stuff depending on players, but you have to have your own philosophies about what you bring and what you let the players do. Um, like that player didn't seem to have any discipline boundaries whatsoever. The coach didn't set out any boundaries whatsoever, and Phil was able to get away with whatever he wanted because he was a star player. And that came back to bite the team in the end. Mm. And even like even in that pub scene when he was trying to ensure that he was coming to the match, you know, he said, he said the GA looks after its own. You know, we get you a job in a bank. And like it is, it's kind of a traditional thing of back back that time that you know the GA would, if you did know someone or if you were in a county team or something, you would get a a handy a handy number as they, they kind of say. Um, yeah. And like I suppose that was. What the coach was trying to say, but it was very stereotypical of of old Ireland, but a lot of a lot of accuracies in it as well, you know. Um, sure, look, even recently, look, just remember the AIB Interfirms team a couple of years ago. It was like an all star team. If you look at it, if if you look at that scene in the pub, um, from the perspective of motivation, like everything is extrinsic motivation for for Phil. It's like. Oh, the county minor selectors are going to be there. The, you'll get a job in a bank. There was nothing that had him really there for the enjoyment of Horland or because Phil wanted to be there himself. Um, like I, I I would view it as one of the worst of, of, of what we've seen so far. It was probably one of the worst engagements from it from a coach or manager. Does that come back to then that like something that we mentioned before that like where it's an amateur organization and a lot of these coaching jobs or coaching roles, we won't call them jobs, they're, they're taken by people who don't really want to do it. They're kind of looked after and looked after. And look, I know we spoke about the last fellow in the pub that will say, look, Jesus, will you look after the lads? We've got no manager. And eventually they get someone. And like when the manager doesn't really want to be that, be there, or the coach doesn't want to be there, like it's hard to kind of get a positive, I suppose, mentality out of him as well, isn't it? Yeah, but I said I'd say the coach in the film really wanted to be there. Hmm. Sometimes you have these over enthusiastic coaches who think they know it all or they're the, the main people in the club or they have to if they're not looking after the team, the club isn't being run right. Um yeah. you have to be wary of people like that in a club as well and try to move them on if you can. And is it, the co- is it the coach education then that like that's one of the things like in fairness, I was probably looking at it going, he's never probably received nobody's ever told him he's doing something right or wrong um he's never probably had an opportunity to learn from other coaches he's 
probably never ever been on a coaching course, um, even challenging his own thoughts in any way. And the way he's coaching is the same way that everybody else in the coach in the club probably coaches. And uh, like that would have been a way back before, I suppose, the advent of technology and the the, the availability of coach education and stuff like that um, is where people just they see what they do or they see what others do when they copy. He was a very old school type coach as well, wasn't he? Mm. In terms yeah. of their press ups and their push ups and whatever they're doing, and when someone was late for training, he got them. He punished them for that. Um, but can you just... remember? Can you remember that being trained? Like Not I remember that age. I remember well like, when we were that age we were we were older but we were like back in the early 90s and stuff like that we were that age we were teams. older no but like when we were when we were yeah, back in you the weren't late... as old as, you weren't as old as Blackie Connors he looked at least 25 <laughs> playing <laughs> and the rest of them were minors I think by the, by the other the fellow who scalped him but um, like I remember I remember going down, down the pitches and, and like being at the father's trainings or even like that was the thing like it was press ups and if you're late you do this and you know like even up to 10 years ago that would have been a regular old kind of uh, I suppose punishment for, for discipline you know um, like that was seen as a norm for a, for a large amount of coaches back 20-30 years ago like it, it, Colin the sad thing is it, it is still pre- prevalent in, in some in some coaching setups that that's that's what's happening, you know. Do you remember you play a match and if you lost the game, you think, oh, they're going, we're going to get Ren or Arses up next Tuesday night at training. And if you won the game, the running would be as bad. That's the way I used to look at things. That's, well, I suppose that's 20 years ago plus now. Yeah? Uh, and I'd, I'd look, I, I think, as you said, Paul, I think even the those that do it now, they're the ones that are kind of they're the fixed mindset. They're not willing to go out and listen to a workshop or go to a coaching course, coaching course or anything like that. And like, it's the people who probably aren't committed to being a good coach and being as good as they can be. No, obviously they want to win and stuff, but they don't think that there's anything outside of what they're already doing is going to help them. I'd say with, with a large amount of that, that's in, let's say in current situations. And how do we go about getting a coach to change like that, that they're, they're not being staying one dimensional, but they're opening to learning and opening to engagement. You know what? Um, like on that, Carol Dweck is obviously a really big psychologist in in this line of work, and her looking at the difference between growth and fixed mindsets. And you can really easily go onto YouTube and look at a three minute or a ten minute or a half an hour video of some of her work and it really illustrates the, the, the differences between both. But I, I, I suppose in that the people who would, would go searching Carol Dweck are going to be of that fixed mindset anyway and probably aren't going to go have a look at it. Um, but it's just like, how do you, when, when people are unwilling to change and unwilling to accept they have any fault, what do you do like? Like I always kind of would have been of the opinion that thirty percent of the coaches, let's say at any given time in the GA, have no interest in coach education. They're just no, I just go down one night a week, go play the match. That's it. I'm not, you know, making no extra effort. They're fellows that are kind of forced in there. They might have been the last man standing. They're doing a job that they don't really want to be there. Um, I'd say there's another forty percent in are kind of willing, willing 
would have played experienced themselves and kind of used their past experiences and a small bit of coach education and what they do what they do you'd have another sign of 20 percent would be non-past wouldn't have past experience but are avid learners and we spoke about that last week that they're really willing to learn it if i'd say as i'm doing a zoom call tomorrow night if anyone's got to talk about coaching they'll be on they might be the best coaches but they're the ones willing to learn and then you've got the top 10 percent of the, the fellas that are the whole lot encapsulated had to learn um had to take on feedback challenge themselves challenge their own thinking but the bottom 30 percent, i remember i said it one time to brian cutbert i said like what can we do for them same as same like if they don't want to learn and his answer was, well, it's not that they don't want to learn. It's what we're offering them isn't something that suits them. So we have to change our coach education for that cohort. So maybe they don't want to sit down in a traditional award one course, seven, seven sessions, seven, two and a half hour sessions. Maybe they need something else. Maybe they need somebody to go to stand on their shoulder for five nights of training. I don't know what it is. I'm not saying that's the answer, but it, it was an interesting look. Um, and maybe, a kind of, maybe they need a podcast that they can go and listen to watch a movie and then listen to the coach elements of it. Yeah, take out the good, the good, the good and the bad. But maybe maybe that is. But for some of them, maybe that is what they'll, what they'll know or what they need. And it was just a very interesting take from Brian when he said that to me. He just said, like, we're obviously what we're offering isn't catering for their needs. And in fairness, it did knock me back a small bit because I was always of a kind of mindset that, yeah, look, they don't want to learn. We, we can't do anything for them. But I'm saying they don't want to learn from the model that we're currently using you know so i just thought it was a very, very good point yeah very good point um, it's differentiation it, really isn't it between the different types of coaches and learning what people yeah, do yeah so it's probably knowing the individual and what does he want or what could he use you know and for some of them it could be simple just someone come down watching a training session uh for others they might someone do the training session for them i don't know what it is but there's there's probably something for everyone but you need to find out that what that something is I suppose like the, the main thing that we would have seen out of the film would have been the, the kind of pressure um, and of like leaving cert and exams and pressure from parents, pressure from coaches. As Massey, you mentioned the guard, pressure from the community to, to excel at the sport. And yet within the GA, we're looking at that pressure and that's still common now. Um, like I know, Paul, you'd work an awful lot with the kind of 18 to 20 cohort. Like, that's still something that's fairly prominent, I'd imagine, in a lot of young kids' lives. Like, there is a need there to work on balancing of their home life, their, be it their academic life, be it their sporting life, work life, trying to get it all in and have enough time for everything and realise what's important at a particular time. And, like, I find with, with young lads just assisting them a little bit with time management can make a big difference in terms of what they're able to give you and, and, and the team you're involved with and then what they're able to give their academic studies because invariably they're not using time efficiently, you know, and um, I suppose people who, who are able to excel at that dual career of sport and whatever else it is they're, they're looking to do, having that, that time balancing and, and, and time management is critical, you know? And what, what tools do you give them to enable them to have better time management, Paul? What way do you go about it? Well, like, I suppose you're, you're dealing with 168 hours in the week, first of all, okay? And secondly, how much time are they spending on social media? How much time... So what are the really important things to them 
Um, and you would like to think it's going to be the really important things are going to be family, friends, and progressing academically, right? They're the really important things. And then excelling at sport, maybe just below that, or if they're good, if they're good time management wise, it could be it could be leveled up. But then, like the idea of wasting time on that social media element, um, like a bit of it is important. And you'll find out that you'll have loads of time for it if you give adequate portions of space to the important things first. Yeah, and I suppose like just like in the film, like we're talking about common day, like what, like 18 is, that's probably the biggest dropout age in the GA, that kind of uh, 17 to 9 to 20 bracket. And like, is there any particular reason for that or is it just like, is it like is it something Sean actually said to me today? He said like, are we, are we building, are we not building resilience in kids because they're playing at their own age grade the whole way up and when they get to 17, they have to join with the age group above and it puts them out of their comfort zone and that's when they're giving up. Like, I know that's not the only reason, but are we putting, like, is it resilience before it? Is there things we can do before they get to that age to help them cope with potential potential, I suppose, problems as they, as they arise. We we talked previously about um, exposing players to failure, to controlled failure within within certain parameters. And what you're after mentioning there, column, like if you do allow fellas to go up in age group in the club, they kind of really struggle and then they come back, that, like, that allows for development when they come back to their own age group, you know. But that's typically not what not what happens it's typically the two fellas who are going to progress on to be senior hurlers in the club or play county they're the fellas who go up in age group or two age groups whereas we should be maybe exposing a few fellas from below who, who are weaker on the under 14 team expose them up and expose them up to the under 15 team and then back down again and there's like there is benefits because like we, we we have to try and avoid that dropout at that particular age that Phil Kelly was at where right leaving cert is massively important and he possibly had some mental health issues as well like he he certainly had um struggles with where his own identity was like when he was trying to get off with Martin's woman who was just back from from London like that was I was just waiting for them to to crack on at some stage. <laughs> and it never really um, but like that's going on. The mother giving out to him every time he comes home late at night. I'd be more in your line to be concentrating on the leaving cert. Even his engagement with the father where like he comes back from the match and the only thing the father says to him, typical Irish father, did you win? Mm. It wasn't, did you enjoy yourself? It's, it did you win and then I suppose the, the, the relationship with the father and it was just real that Irish father-son relationship where yeah well look this is kind of awkward I'm, I'm, I'm here for you you know, where, you know where I live like if you want anything yeah. um, if it doesn't work out yeah if it doesn't work out we'll always be here if you want us but it was go away, go away and don't be annoying us really <laughs> um, but like there's that like there's the the academic side of things, the change in work, the change in your identity of who you are and getting away from that role of 
being a submissive to to other people is all going on at that particular particular age where you're you're looking to spread your wings and 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 go your own uh, like, like like I suppose a lot of the time in fairness it is the GA like I won't say it suffers but the GA is one that kind of gets pushed aside a lot of the time like I, I've seen it I've seen it in the last couple of years where there have been players that would have excelled at underage uh, at club and county level and by the time they're 19 they're just they're they're essentially burnt out as well you know um they've actually done too much you know so you can imagine if phil was inside in the the minor squad and they were training two or three times a week as well as with a school team two or three times a week and with the club two or three times a week and expected to play adult hurling if he's 18 and like that can be an awful lot of pressure on a young fella and sometimes the, the GA is the easiest one to say no lads I, I need a break or I'm gone you know because you can't do it from from home you can't you can't take a break from home really you can't take a break from from school and the GA is the one that falls down and I suppose it's something to be conscious of that I suppose there, there's there can be a lot going on in somebody's life but like I still imagine with those players that I'm talking about the same as Phil Kelly they went away and they popped around at the wrong time. So we've seen Phil when he was running the hill sprints at the start and practicing yeah. jab lift with the hurley turned the wrong way around. And when he was in the ball wall, uh, you know, there's still a release. The GA can still bring a release to a player on an individual base. And like, as, as I said, I, I know there was an article about mindfulness and hurling there, but just hitting the ball against the wall repetitively is, is good for the, the mind that you can bring it back to the moment and stuff like that. And But being part of a team and on a, tra- a training pitch or a match, and pressure on again like maybe for some players they just aren't in the right frame of mind for that around that age like there's not enough of them old style ball alleys scattered around the country anymore there's a lot of them that have gone into disrepair um, and it, it would be great to see a lot of them that are about the country restored to to the state that that they were once in because they are fantastic to look at you know like I know just down the road from me in the Ivy Grounds, there's a nice one, but like it's just fill up, full up with a uh, machinery, like. Mm. Um, and there's and nothing better just... as well in that scene. Uh, Phil had a savage pair of Adidas on. Oh, did he? <laughs> as, as ever, as ever. <laughs> and he also definitely had the best gear bag I've seen in a long time. The the kind of it was a, it was a leather a leather piece. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be out of a. Out of a it was like a weekend bag that a cultured a cultured gentleman would take away for a, a stag weekend away. Is yeah, there wouldn't be too many cultured men down in Cork now. No, not at all. <laughs> but just going back there about integrating a player who leaves that finishes at minor into adult level, um, some. 18-year-olds, don't forget, like, they are teenagers, find that very hard going into a dress room with lads they grew up with for the last 10 years and then going into a completely new environment altogether. Is there any way you can help new players into a squad like that? Do you know, Matt, Matt just one on that note, um, we were playing a championship game during the summer and I just happened to know two of the young fellas, they'd be under 17s just from development squads over the year over the years and they were actually pucking around they were doing the puck around with the goalkeeper beforehand so they were doing the pucking the ball in for yeah. puck outs and stuff like that and I was just there thinking Jesus we need to do that with our young fellas below in our club we need to start getting the fellas that are potential senior players yeah. integrated into the into the, the setup a small bit even if something like because they'd love to be down there pucking around with the keeper like you know um, yeah. but I just thought it was such a simple thing but next year 
like those two boys are going to be playing, getting game time with that club team. Um, And if not starting, but they'll definitely be getting game time. And just saying, like, rather than the player having that fear of going, Jesus, I don't know any of these fellas, you know, like I only played with two of them and, you know, it's it's a big step up for a lot of them mentally. Um, but just thinking of that now, I was going, geez, that's a great idea. It's a brilliant idea, and it's something that could definitely be done on a, on a larger scale. Now, both of them had older brothers on the team as well, but that probably helped. But if you did have uh, other other kids that say that, I suppose that helped that they were always the brother was always driving to train and or whatnot, so they were always able to go. But I just thought that was a was a brilliant brilliant thing to see. And how many how many have you got any? Can in your club where you're like you want X amount of players coming from your minors every year into your senior squad, or what would you like? Uh, Are you only taking the, the better players, or what way? Uh, no, like look here, like there was there was fellas who were subs for the minor or getting subbed in the minor team this year. We're playing junior B um, ahead of ahead of me, you know, and other older fellas. So like there, once once a fella comes of age, we try to find a team from like I know Nafina would have been very proactive on that about uh, ten years ago where they actually would have had a committee looking after the footballers and putting them into one of the four or five adult teams. So let's say Massey and Paul, you're two Dublin minors. You're going into the senior one. Uh, Cullum, you're, you're going into senior twos. Fellas who were down the level, we've got to the intermediates or the juniors. So they, they kind of monitored that over the course of the year. So they had a committee and their sole focus for the year was monitoring those players who transitioned from 18 to 19, make sure they go training, make sure there's a team for them, make sure they get game time and stuff like that, which I thought was very proactive. Um, but obviously that's a big club. That's a big club and they'd have to monitor something. But obviously smaller clubs wouldn't have that that need, I suppose, because it's easy to monitor. But like uh, as, as other clubs, I, I wouldn't know what they'd be doing, to be honest. Another good thing, just as you were talking there, Colm, so obviously there's a big disconnect if... There's a 35-year-old on the senior panel with a wife and two kids and a 17-year-old coming into it who's half his age and like completely different interests, whatever. It could be really beneficial if you're looking to work in that transition within your own club that there is a player or two, adult players, coaching the club minor team if it was allowable that straight away then when them lads go up the following year that they have that connection of oh there's Moss here there's Colm and they're able to be integrated into it a a hell of a lot quicker Mm. and as well like what you were saying there and I think it's actually it's actually outlawed now by rules but if minors were able to do uh, Mayor Ishka or Mayor come on on championship days for the senior team or the intermediate team or junior team or whatever it just gets them integrated in straight away and it's it, it's building that whole club atmosphere as much as possible but I do I, I, I think you need to be over 18 to be doing that now mm-hmm. Oh I just think it's very very important because you might have a, as I said a lad or, or a girl who's in the in the same dressing room for the last 10-12 years and they might be shy and you know they're confident in their own group, but then once they go into that adult dressing room, like it's a different world, um, they may be intimidated, and it might be one of the reasons that they back away a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think it's just very important that you keep an eye on them and maybe have a word with them, even even if it's a case of bringing one of their friends into the panel as well. I don't know, just to you know, yeah. basically keep them company, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. 
I, I think there's always comfort in numbers. And like if, I suppose, Jamie Wall last week was talking in, in, in Britain about having large numbers of training, etc., and having a panel of 40 plus by the end of the year. Like if there was one fella you really wanted and he's him and Han because he, he hasn't integrated into the panel, sure isn't, aren't you just as well getting three or four of the fellas up? Like they're not going to take away from the training mm-hmm. and they're only going to improve. They're not right now, but in two or three years, you could end up with four of them being key men. While in 2021, Colm is going to be the is going to be the minor who steps up and is a main man straight away. But if he has the two of us there as a bit of guidance and and, and a bit of moral support, it, it, it allows him to develop and, and us to develop as well. You know, just just what's in there, my head's there now. You're talking about um, a player who's been in development squads of. 14, 15, 16, and they're good players. And then they get, all right, you're no longer in the, you don't make the minor panel. And you said, just go back to the club and you, you work there and see how you get on. How do we deal with that setback for 17-year-old, 18-year-old in a club scenario? What can we do for them? Within a club, from a club's perspective, I'm not sure, but I do know that like parental support at home is very, very important. Like in that you're you're like if parents are going away and they're going, ah sure to mind him, he's only a bollocks that fella, you know, you're good enough and you know if you're giving the child that kind of or the, the child that kind of I suppose notions. Yeah, you know, like stuff like that. Whereas if you get a like parent like you know, just chatting to one parent there not so long ago, um, and it was something like, you know, yeah, he's absolutely gutted, but look, he's he's chance, he'll get another chance, he'll be playing hurling for the next fifteen years. And if he gets a chance and he takes it, then so be it. Um, but look, he'll get over it. And, you know, if he gets a chance again, as you know, that was the kind of mindset of the parent. Yeah. I mean, you get that mindset. I think that's a great start because it's not blaming others for the, the player not getting there. It's saying, yeah. right, look, we didn't get there now, but there'll be other opportunities. And I thought that was very, very important that the parental support is, is I suppose, is there in some guise like that. And I suppose to have their... To look at the bigger picture of it, as opposed to just the small-mindedness of "oh fuck, I didn't make the minor panel this year, or the under twenty panel, or the under fourteen panel." Even, you know, there'll be chances come again, and you know, you got to do your work and what you got to work at and stuff like that. And if you can identify that at home, that's a great start. As a club, then, like, is is it doing the same? Is it like as I said, it's hard. It's hard for man- club managers. I suppose they're probably looking at going, "Jesus, we got your man now every day. It's great." Yeah. But from the player's perspective, would he rather be somewhere else? You know. One night a week or two nights a week. Like I said, I think we mentioned it before about the drop-off rate from players who've been over in England playing football and they let, yeah. get, let go by the club. And that's it. They don't play anymore and they come back home to Ireland. Like, mm. They're just demoralised. Um, so Some have the attitude, oh, I'll get my chance again if I work hard enough. And plenty have and made a good career for themselves. But an awful lot of others just fall by the wayside completely. So something to be very wary of a player in your club who was an excellent player, but just let's go by the county. Like you still have to mind them. You still have to put the efforts and energy and resources into them like you would when they were the player that you were hoping to make a county team. I think what Colm said there was the manager's often delighted to an extent that he's been he's been let go and he has full access. And that, that, that alone can allow for we'll say that that arm around the shoulder because he, he's there all the time. The bigger problem would, would nearly be if 
if the club kind of aren't aware that he's after being let go or he's after suffering a setback, be it in in with the county or be it at third level, and he, he starts drifting. And that's why engagement with players as is, is often as possible, no matter the level, is is important just to see how they're getting on. You know, and yeah. like obviously Barry only wanted Phil Kelly to be playing the match on the Sunday. That's all he cared about. He didn't care about how the Leaving Cert was going. He didn't care that he was having points. He didn't care about anything. Just play the game. And again, that isn't that isn't going to bode well for the long term sustainability of of that player or their development as a person. It might be the first time they've ever had any sort of rejection or sense of failure in their in their lives. Like you know, like when you get to colleges, for example, and you might get what 50 or 60 freshers out and that's been a low number and like these majorities could be county minor players and they're making the fresher B team mm. like some of them can't take that whatsoever like what she's what you know but again you have to just tell them look you have your chance to play fresher B um, just do what you do and you don't know where will that lead to next year like there's plenty of lads that won secrets and medals and they weren't making their fresher first team mm. definitely so Mick Barry well, we'll go back to back to the match um what do you think of his... his uh... the, 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 the scene where they're pulling at the very start. It was shocking. ridiculous. Yeah. Getting on to probably the most important coaching point from Horland. Nearly all of them are using Horlands that are too big. That was back in the day, Paul. They all used 37s back in the day. There's, yeah. a, lovely pic- there's a lovely picture of a family in Cork. Um, there's four, <laughs> four lads and their father. Um with their hurdy sticks and I think I don't think any of them ever grew into the hurdy sticks I think they were were they killer men or were they banded men at the time killer men Massey and uh, ki- there was one men. there was one fella had a hurley that wasn't his and he decides 37 uh, but the rest of us had our own hurleys alright but um, yeah no I, do you know what Paul a large amount of it as well was because it was much more ground hurling back in those days so the, the length of the stick the length of the hurley never really like I suppose the shorter hurley has become more pop, more common and more popular because the just more touch um work now like that there's more striking under pressure and trying to avoid the hook and stuff but uh back in the day it was like my father used to size 37 and he'd be probably two or three inches shorter than me and I've never used more than a 30 when I used 36 one year when I was 14 because I thought it was great but um so they know, reduced think, the size they reduced the size of the stick for a couple of inches like they reduced the word from hurley to hurl that's it yeah yeah shape all stuff but uh yeah i think it was and it's again the same thing like i don't know massey i don't know if you were up in the garmerstown in the hurling leagues like you'd see kids playing it's all ground hurling and they'd be using long hurlies because they can get a reach to the ball but as soon as they need to get the ball up into the hand and striking the ball and hooking and blocking and all that kind of stuff the longer hurley is obviously a small bit of a hindrance but back in those days i don't think it was as much of a factor but it's also okay you buy a hurling you last you a while you grow into it well, yeah, and if you break it, the club give you one, and the club probably give yeah. you a, a bunch of thirty sevens. All they probably had um, back in the good old days when the clubs supplied the broken hurley. But yeah, but uh, what about the halftime team talk? I suppose a couple of the comments there that were uh, one was was take take no fucking prisoners was one of them. Um, I'm in charge here. Shut up, you. And another one was, do you think this is a camogie match? And I know that that would offend a large proportion of. Uh, of the, the potential audience these days. Um, but like it was it was a lot of cliches, said Paul, like that at the start. He just 
rattle off a lot of things that I'd say we've all heard or have heard said uh, numerous times. Or said yourself. <laughs> and not at all. It was just cliche ridden, but like the un- the underlying element of it was that Phil Kelly was off talking to two of the other boys, possibly the full forward and, and the wing forward, telling them to pull out and create a bit of space. And that was the point where he goes, shut up or whatever, and it'd be more and it'd be more in your line to be listening. It's like a Kamogi match you're playing. But he was giving relevant coaching points to the other boys because they were on the pitch and they knew what was going on rather than whatever whatever Mick Barry was saying, you know? And like I thought it was really funny that we'll say Phil then goes about the, the throw in for the second half. Just make sure the ball gets through to me. Like so he was the corner forward out a half time for the for the throw in at the back of the as as a third midfielder. And like I wouldn't imagine there was any third midfielders back in nineteen eighty seven, you know that kind of way. Mm. But it, there was just it just really showed the difference between him and where Mick Barry was at, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of player empowerment, which would be very common now, was just Blocked straight there and told, no, listen to me. Um, so, yeah. And he else had in the fellow? There was a wild savage, two wild savage pulls, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Phil Kelly's one was fairly rash, wasn't it? <laughs> it was It was absolutely scandalous. Yeah. And said he'd be, uh, it's a good thing he was going to London because he'd be getting a long suspension from after that. <laughs> but he was, he uh, could be gone for good. But yeah. uh, I was, I, 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 I was just... It was a, after being a Cork TV show there, like watching it. I just went down a little rabbit hole and just like, what has happened to Cork Ireland? What do you mean? Like, they haven't won an All Ireland senior since 2005. Correct. And under 21 since 98. Yeah. A, a minor since 2001. I know. No, no, listen, you know, under 17. That was the year where it wasn't really the big thing, right? So it didn't really matter. An All Ireland club since 2003. Take out Newtown's couple of club championships in the noughties. They haven't won a Munster since '87. Like, what's what happened? Like, you know, where they were the kings. I heard it. Like, what no, happened? do you know? Do you know why they were the kings? Um, why the clubs were the kings, Massey, is because they, they had all country boys playing in the city. That was right. that's why that's why the city clubs dominated for so long. Like, I actually think, and somebody might be able to correct me. I'd say somebody it will hardly be corrected, but um, I think Blackrock winning the county this year was the first time a team won a county with fully homegrown players in Cork. Um, not including divisions in this. Um, but I divisions think I, be homegrown in this. Well, yeah, well, they, should, they should be, but no, they mightn't be. But I, I, I don't think any club team in Cork has ever won a county fully um, fledged with players that started in their club and came up in their club. And I think this is the first year. I think this Black Rock team might have been the first year ever. Really? Yeah, um, but what about like the like Newtown and the, the Newtown? Did a fellow from Tipperary playing? Did a fellow from Limerick playing? As far as I know, I think one of the cornerbacks um was was brought in for a while. He was from Tipperary. Yeah. Um, like Sarah's teams, I think I think a couple of lads would have actually started in Brian Dillon's. Um, okay. And so you got Middleton had a fellow from Kilkenny playing um in 2013. So I think a large amount of the city, the club stuff came from that. Um, it was it was outsiders playing with them, and the same with Middleton when they won. I think they won probably it was an eighty seven where they the last club team to win it. Eighty seven, yeah, yeah. And like they they had fellas from Dungorny and stuff playing with them. 
Um, so. But like, but still though, like they're still getting these outsiders playing. So why, why? Yeah, uh, not as much, like, not as prominent anymore, to be honest. As you're just saying, yeah, the court homebred lads aren't as good, is it? Well, from a club perspective, I think that's why the clubs aren't as dominant as they were. Um, okay. Like, like the bars, like they played with numerous players. Um, they would have players playing. You know, the bars came to win the senior football and senior hurling all Ireland's Like they weren't fully homegrown club players, like. Um, right. so, so that's that's reason that as regards to the hurling intercounty, I can't tell you what's I don't know the answer to that. And even if I did know the answer, nobody would be willing to listen to to what I had to say. So yeah, no, it's just no. a nice looking back at Jesus. A long time for a, a, a county with a tradition of hurling like that. Yeah, I know the other thing yeah. is I think all the other counties have been much more proactive. Like uh, I know we spoke about it before about hurling being a small bit of a closed shop than you'd Kilkenny and and Tipperary for a long time, and they kept everybody else kind of down. Uh, between the three of them but it's become a lot more open and I think a large part of that as well is just the the the, the ease for a player now to stay at home um, in comparison to the, to the past where migration and stuff would have been large uh, back in the 80s even um, yeah. and I think to, with the economy and stuff like that players were able to stay closer to home and the ease of playing playing at home and living at home and stuff like that for a bit longer maybe I don't know but if you've a, if you've a solution, Massey, be sure to tell us. No, no, it just sounds interesting that um that is like just Cork is always give all the beatings in all Ireland finals. So I think the first all Ireland finals ever happened in nineteen eighty six. I don't know. Got we ever beaten Cork in the final? No, not senior level. You might get your chance in the future, but look, so that means Cork have to get to a final. Yeah, that's yeah. probably not happening. True. Yeah, we'll wait and see. Anyway, anything else said in the film? Uh, no, just I thought it was like an enjoyable fifty minutes. Like, and we've um, everyone should just have a look at it. I know yeah. it's even just the comical factor, some of the acting, and some of the scenes. But um, as you said, there like normal people has probably written about it. To be honest with you, it's a good, good show, and they packed a lot into the fifty minutes. The music by the Pogues and it is good as well. Yeah, and it was look, it's nostalgic. I'd say anyone, anyone that was born in the in the seventies. Would be fairly could could understand an awful lot of things to happen there. So there you go. Right, what are we giving Mick Barry out of five? Zero. Zero. Oh my god, Massey. I'd give him one there. He was he knew where to find his player in the pub, didn't he? And he uh, he said he tried to motivate him. I said he'd be able to get a job good times, but he wouldn't survive long today in management. I don't think at any level for Mick. I yeah, I'm gonna give him a one as well, and I just think look, I, in his defence, he he obviously never received any help, or, or was never given an opportunity to source ways of improving as a coach, or knowing what were better methods and stuff like that. I think it was a lot of commonality with coaching back then, and I think that's why the as I said we were saying how true the film is to real life. I think the coaching is probably true to the coaching of today as well, um, for the average the average club, um, so. Yeah, I think he's uh, started off in a tough, tough break for the men. But yeah, so there you go. Um, favorite, any favorite scenes or lines from the film? They haven't mentioned yet. Top of my own one was when he was inside the toilet, and your man says, "Uh, ah, anything more than three shakes is a wank." <laughs> <laughs> like the little lines, like you shape up or ship out. Yeah, it's a nice, simple one there, and uh, the Camogie match one as well. It was that uh, in today's day and age, you couldn't be saying stuff like that. 
I thought the one by the the mother. I'm not ma. I'm mother. Was good as well. What was it? I'm not ma. I'm mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I can't remember who said it, but it was after the before the match that I was in the pub. Um, so Anna, right, we leave it at that. Um, thanks very much, Paul. Thanks, Massey. Thank you, Colm. Thanks for joining us today. Please leave a review on your favourite platform, and if you enjoyed it, tell a friend. You may also want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Roy Orbison Tattoo, and we appreciate any likes, retweets, comments, and any feedback in general. Next week, we will be watching Mighty Ducks 2, and we'll have the show available first thing Tuesday morning, as always. Thanks, everybody.